This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. A mysterious secret national security threat roils Washington this week as Donald Trump gets a date for his first criminal trial, the hush money case in New York, and maybe a disqualification of Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, editorial board members, Kate Batchelder, Odell, and Manet Ukwe-Berua. The fur in Washington this week started with a cryptic statement from Congressman Mike Turner. Here's what he said today. The House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat. I'm requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond. That was followed with all sorts of leaks and rumors. It was something about space. Then there was a reporter that caught a congressman coming out of of a skiff, the area where they're allowed to view classified material. And his quote was, it's definitely not about aliens. So sorry to disappoint listeners there. Then the rumor that it had something to do with nuclear capability, but not exactly clear what that quote was supposed to mean. Let's listen to White House spokesman John Kirby responding as much as he says he can to these rumors. Uh, I know that Chairman Turner's letter to House members and his subsequent post on social media about a national security threat has prompted a lot of questions. While I am limited by how much I can share about the specific nature of the threat, I can confirm that it is related to an anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing. I want to be clear about a couple of things right off the bat. First, this is not an active capability that's been deployed. And though Russia's pursuit of this particular capability is troubling, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. That said, we've been closely monitoring this Russian activity and we will continue to take it very seriously. Okay, what the heck is going on here? I mean, I guess that it's comforting that this is not a, a, a secret Russian weapon that can harm anyone here on Earth. But if it has broad uh, a threat to satellite capabilities, that could cause an awful lot of disruption and devastation. So certainly appreciate the attempt to calm the public impulse to uh, start heading for the bunker. You know, Speaker Mike Johnson said uh, steady hands are at the wheel, which I think he also meant to be reassuring, but made me reflect on whether that's really the case with our current government. But there's a lot we don't know about what exactly this capability is. But I think it's worth taking a step back about what our satellites are and how vulnerable they are. For a long time, we've relied on a small number of large satellites in space the size of a school bus. These are big turkeys for our adversaries to try to take out. And because we're so reliant on them for GPS, for missile warning, anything our troops do our troops' movements rely on satellites, our precision-guided weapons rely on GPS guidance. We're really reliant on uh, satellites, both for our everyday life in the homeland and for our military operations. So that has made them a very attractive target for some of our adversaries. And so Russia and China have been working for years to develop ways to take out 
our satellites and blind us. And so that's what fundamentally what we're talking about. And so what I'd say about the Kirby comment is that it's, of course, trying to calm the public down immediately. But I think it's actually a disservice to suggest these weapons are not an immediate or harmful threat that we should be focused on. I think it's it's clear that if we are not developing countermeasures fast enough to stop Russia and China from blinding us in space and causing havoc either in the homeland or keeping us from being able to operate abroad, that's a big threat that the public needs to know more about. And so I think Turner here, who's caught a lot of grief, we can talk more about that. I think he's saying declassify what we know and let's have a public dialogue about it. And I think that's appropriate given from what we know so far. It also raises questions, Binet, about how advanced uh, America's capabilities along the same lines are. And some critics have pointed to this statement in 2022 from Vice President Kamala Harris. Here's the White House fact sheet. It says that she is announcing the United States commits not to conduct destructive direct ascent anti-satellite missile testing and that the United States seeks to establish this as a new international norm for responsible behavior in space. And the context of this is previous Russian tests that have created all sorts of debris that is a danger not only to satellites, but to the International Space Station, to any manned space flight. There was a um, a test on November 15, 2021. This is from U.S. Space Command. It said it struck a Russian satellite, created a debris field, generated more than 1,500 pieces of trackable orbital debris, and will likely generate hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbital debris. So, Manet, I understand the instinct from the United States' perspective that it would be great if all of our adversaries decided to be good actors in space and not do those kinds of tests and develop these kinds of weapons. Although I think that's maybe giving Vladimir Putin a little bit too much credit. And if he is going into space, it's hard not to think that the Pentagon definitely should be there first. Well, I think that statement from Vice President Harris and the accompanying policy of the United States actually choosing to limit or suspend its tests of anti-satellite weapons is both horrible and completely representative of what the Democratic Party's approach recently has been to diplomacy and warfare, in that they very much believe that if the United States reaches out to our adversaries and says, we're willing to move first in the direction of limiting our own capabilities in the hope that our adversaries will follow suit, then that's how we can avoid escalating and avoid being dragged into a potentially harmful conflict for all sides. There's an ounce of logic to it in the sense that our adversaries also know that they have a lot to lose. Uh, Russia and China obviously understand the practical problem with space debris that comes from the tests and also the threat of being drawn into space conflict, the likes of which no nation on Earth has seen before. But frankly, they've shown themselves to be consistently ambitious. They've poured a lot of money and a lot of focus in developing their space capabilities, both offensive and defensive, and there isn't really any sign that they're willing to slow down. And so for the United States to unilaterally say that we're going to be limiting our own tests without any commitments or any way to enforce that same action in our adversaries is hopelessly naive. And I do think that there's the timeless naivety of that kind of approach moving unilaterally. But with space question, it's also particularly ill-suited to the challenges that the United States is facing because I think we're moving so fast in terms of 
how weapons are being developed in this sphere, crossing new frontiers very quickly. Um, a lot of the capabilities that are being developed are never before seen and are completely up for grabs. And so it made a certain amount of sense, I think, in 1967 to agree to the Outer Space Treaty, suggest that we're going to keep space unmilitarized. But now that we've reached this point where both states and private companies are able to develop space capability very quickly and much less expensively than they previously were. And it seems like there's the chance of really losing a lot of ground very quickly to Russia or China. It's particularly bad to say that the United States is not going to pour every resource it possibly can into making sure that we have supremacy in that space. So hopefully Mike Turner's leak can be the wake up call that Kate suggests and policymakers will realize how much is at stake and how short the window is for the United States to regain its lead. Kate, what do you make of the remarkable manner that this debate has taken place? First, with that statement from Turner, and let me read again, this is a piece of an Axios report on the Kirby statement. He said the U.S. has known about the weapon for many, many months, if not years. But in recent weeks, the intelligence community was able to, quote, assess with a higher sense of confidence, exactly how Russia continues to pursue it. So, Kate, that is fascinating because it suggests that what Turner is talking about is not news to anybody in the national security space, but it is definitely news to the public. And maybe some of these debates about how the U.S. should be responding or what the role of the Pentagon is in going into space, maybe some of those have been happening behind the scenes. But it is hard now that we have had this, this big flap in Washington to think that the White House does not owe the public a, a stronger explanation of what's going on here. Yes, I mean, the underlying evidence either exists or it doesn't. And so Turner clearly thinks that uh, what he knows will stand up to the public scrutiny. And so I think that it makes sense to declassify it. And clearly, I don't think the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee would have done this if he didn't perceive that was the way, only way to get the information declassified and out into the public for debate. I think he deserves some credit for trying to uh, wake up the public and involve them in understanding what some of the new, new nascent risks are to the homeland. Now, to your point, there has been an awareness that our satellites are vulnerable and that we need to uh, mix up our strategy in space. And the core way we've been doing that is by launching more and smaller satellites. So making our network more resilient and relying on a diverse mix of, of satellite constellation up in space. So those efforts are are underway. However, there is a question of, of how quickly we will implement them. And one thing that I can't help but notice is that the Pentagon doesn't have an appropriation for 2024. We're still trying to get basic government funding bills done. And some space priorities that the Space Force has wanted to do are still in limbo waiting for waiting for funding from Congress. So I think this is one example of where the public is just not yet tuned in to what's really going on in the world and how vulnerable the homeland is and how vulnerable even you know our own forces are that are, would be abroad. Uh, so I think this should be a moment that uh, captures the public attention. I guess the last thing I'll say too is that it also, I, I hope, will be galvanizing about the underlying nature of the threat from Russia. I hope that it will cause some public reflection that what's going on in Ukraine is, is not limited to what uh, is happening in Ukraine, that Putin has much bigger ambitions and that his chief enemy is the United States. You know, these kinds of capabilities make that clearly obvious. And what he wants to do here, again, with these satellite weapons, anti-satellite weapons, the goal is to make it so that he can hold our satellites at risk and hold a gun to our head and keep us from trying to oppose any of his actions, like keep us from responding 
thing uh, to him. And so I, I don't think Americans want to be held hostage that way. And so more, more folks should know about it. One final thought on this topic. Kate mentioned the Pentagon's uh, appropriation and these new dangerous times that we're facing, particularly with Russia. We have a, now have a, a land war going on in Europe. I would throw in China to the mix and the, the prospect that Xi Jinping could decide that the next few years is the best opportunity to take Taiwan. That is something that is definitely on the minds of policymakers in Washington. And yet the arguments that we are having in Congress and uh, in the White House, I think, are not meeting that moment. And I would point to the conversation we had earlier this week about the spending and the deficit and the debt numbers. The projection from the Congressional Budget Office is that defense spending in 2024 will be 2.9% of GDP, falling over the next decade to 2.5% of GDP. And that compares pretty unfavorably with the years of the Reagan buildup, say. So 1985, uh, defense spending was 5.7% of GDP, and that is lower even than in Vietnam, 8.6% of GDP in 1968. And Manet, when you start to think about a world in which there are uh, peer adversaries to the United States, again, uh, China and Russia already on the move. And uh, it seems to me that that Congress needs to really take this more seriously than it is. And, and maybe this wake up from Congressman Turner will be a piece of that. Absolutely. I think that around the world, America's adversaries are watching this moment and watching the movement of Congress and the president or the lack thereof, and really gauging what the stakes are going to look like for potential conflicts with the US in the years to come. I think that there's a short term political problem that anyone with eyes to see will have witnessed in the past couple of weeks. Uh, with the Republican Party in particular having clearly arrived at this new moment where there's a deep division over any ability to fund preparedness for foreign conflicts, failing to pass supplemental assistance for Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, failing to pass additional support for Ukraine, despite having done so in several rounds over the past couple of years while that war has gone on, and failing to help to prepare Taiwan for a potential invasion from China are all things that would have shocked a lot of the American public just a few years ago in, in, in the sense that these are fairly longstanding American commitments, places where we know that our rivals are able to gain ground if the U.S. isn't willing and able to put up the billions. Then there's also the structural problem that you pointed to, which will play out a little bit more in the long term, but which also will bear on American preparedness. There simply is going to be less money available for our priorities as more of federal spending is devoted to entitlements. And there seems to be no willingness among Congress to actually create a solution to that because they know it would require too much of a political cost. And you've seen more and more denialism from politicians about that question. But I do think it's still important to point out that the United States does still generate more than enough wealth to be able to fund these priorities if the political will were there. Compared with our rivals, we're in a very strong position as far as growth. Obviously, we've seen inflation eat away at our spending power over the course of the past few years. Uh, but the United States economy is still growing very robustly compared with Western Europe. And also in 
light of the slowdowns that we've seen in Russia and China. And so it does show that this is more of a question of political will, both being able to back our allies and put that funding in motion and also able to solve our long-term fiscal crisis and make sure that the money is not being sucked into other priorities. But there is nothing fundamental in the American economy that would prevent us from being able to regain ground, rearm, and be able to maintain our advantage against our rivals. Hang tight. We'll be right back with Trump's legal travails. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome back. Let's turn now to Trump's legal troubles. The drama on Thursday was testimony by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis has brought this sprawling case against President Trump and some of his aides and advisors for trying to overturn the 2020 election, including with uh, RICO racketeering counts. And she's now facing a push to disqualify her from the case on the basis that she dated one of the prosecutors that she had hired to lead this prosecution and embarrassing testimony, Kate. She acknowledged that they had a relationship. She said that it began after she had hired him and, and has since ended. She acknowledged that she and Nathan Wade, the prosecutor's name, went on vacations together, including a cruise. And then she said that she reimbursed him for her portion of those costs in cash. Let's listen to a piece of Fonnie Willis's testimony. It's interesting that we're here about this money. Mr. Wade is used to women that, uh, as he told me one time, the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich. We would have brutal arguments about the fact that I am your equal. I don't need anything from a man. A man is not a plan. A man is a companion. And so there was tension always in our relationship, which is why I was give him his money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. Okay, what did you make of this testimony by the district attorney? Wow, Kyle, uh, it's not a great day if you're having to dissect these details of your personal life here. Um, it's hard to see how she recovers from this testimony. I mean, the question everyone is focused on is, you know, the conflict of interest, right? She appoints this prosecutor and, the, and there are questions about when the relationship started. And so the, the quest to find a conflict of interest. But I think really, though, her credibility to carry on the case um, is in trouble, even absent some complete finding of that way. I mean, she's describing, for instance, on the stand going on these cruises with this man and his mom and says he pays for the cruises, but she pays him back with large amounts of cash that she keeps in her home, which maybe it's true, but uh, it's unfortunate that she can't produce a record showing that she paid her own way on these trips. And it is an odd explanation. And she struggled to answer some questions that seemed basic. The lawyer asked her repeatedly when they started dating or when their romantic relationship ended. And she gave some, uh, you know, musing about what does it mean for a relationship to end? And so the, the cumulative effect was just she really, I think, struggled to maintain her credibility to continue moving forward on this case as an unbiased prosecutor who doesn't have a core conflict and how she's governed herself throughout the process. So it's hard. It's very hard to see her recovering from it. 
The defense that I'm seeing in the press and I think in some of these legal filings is exactly on that. What is the conflict of interest here? She had a personal relationship with a prosecutor in her office. I think that shows a lack of judgment, especially considering the stakes and the public notice that this case was going to inevitably attract. And her argument to the judge is that doesn't mean that I have brought this prosecution in any sort of way that is improper or that my judgment on this case from a legal standpoint has been affected. And M&A, it will be fascinating to see what the judge ultimately decides on that. And maybe it will just be that from the standpoint of this has become too much of a headache and too much of a mess and in the interests of broader justice, it would be better to disqualify Fonnie Willis and get another prosecutor in who can carry the case to its conclusion. Well, I think that the potential conflict for Fannie Willis is self-explanatory in the sense that if she is paying one of her staffers in a way that is going to benefit her because they have a private relationship and that gives him more resources to spend on trips or dinners or what have you, that gives her an incentive to generate more work, which means that she has an incentive to bring charges whenever possible because that's going to generate more work that she can then use taxpayer money from Fulton County to fund and which will redound to her benefit through Nathan Wade's personal account. Uh, and so whether or not she's able to show that there's no paper trail, you know, directly connecting her payments to him from county funds to anything that they enjoyed in their personal life, the evidence of impropriety is still strong enough. I think that it makes sense to say that she's no longer qualified to lead this case and that she was conflicted in some of her judgments about bringing charges. Um, I do think that Regardless of what the judge finds, it's clear that she's discredited herself in a way that's going to affect the case. If she ends up staying on it, it will hang over it. And as far as they're able to, the Trump team is going to continue to bring this up during the course of the trial. And if they remove her, that means another prosecutor is going to have to come in um, in some ways, rebuild the case, perhaps take a different approach. And that is going to trouble the prosecution as well, just from the turnover and the disorder that comes along with that. So it's very clear that her lack of judgment has troubled the case that was already going to be very difficult against Donald Trump. And it's going to remain part of the story of that trial, regardless of what the judge decides about Fonnie Willis. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Kate, we'll give you the last word, but the other news on Thursday was that the judge in New York has set a trial for the first criminal trial of Donald Trump. And remember, this is the case involving the hush money that Michael Cohen paid to Stormy Daniels before the 2016 election. The allegations are that the Trump business internally booked the repayment to Mr. Cohen as payment for legal services. So this is a, an interesting case because even legal minds who are not sympathetic to, to Donald Trump 
have argued that this case should not have been brought in part because Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in Manhattan, jacked these charges up to felonies. But in order to make this bookkeeping crime, in order to be a felony, you have to also prove that the books were changed with an intent to commit a second crime or to conceal a second crime. And so, Kate, that has been the million-dollar question in this case is, what is the second crime? There's been some analysis in the media that maybe it is some kind of campaign finance violation, but it is far from clear that hush money like this counts as a campaign contribution for federal purposes. I could see that spending a lot of time up on appeal in the federal courts, maybe even going to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so it is notable, I think, that the first case to go to trial against Donald Trump, this is going to happen on March 25, apparently. It looks like one of the weaker cases that he faces. Well, it's certainly uh, the weakest case that he faces. I mean, compare it to the case dealing with classified documents and his handling of them. I think that most Americans are at least willing to entertain that as much more substantive based on what the allegations are. But the Alvin Bragg case is a bank shot that relies on, again, like you said, coming up with a second crime. And whether this amounts to a campaign finance violation just seems like a huge stretch. And I think, too, there's no benefit to the country in this dragging on for years and years as that makes its way to through the appeals system, even if he were to be convicted. So, you know, Trump thinks he benefits from this kind of persecution as he's able to sell it from his enemies. And then the case where this trial is going on and high election season, he might be right. Um, I think we're going to I think eventually Democrats will regret having brought this one and rue the day. But we'll see. Thank you, Kate Manet. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Potomac Watch. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.